Shall we pray? Our Father, as we open now your word, we would ask that you would give us understanding, give us uh, application and faith to respond to your word, and hide these things away that we might uh, know your word is a lamp to our feet. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please open God's word with me to Romans 14. And we are also at the chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession. It's in your order of worship, the bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, it's in the back of the Trinity hymnal. Chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession. Last time we looked at section one, the great freedoms that the believer has from the work of Christ. Reading again, section one, the liberty which Christ purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, from the condemning wrath of God, and from the curse of the moral law. Furthermore, it consists in their being delivered from this present evil age, from bondage to Satan and the dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, from the sting of death, from the victory of the grave, and from everlasting damnation. It consists also in their free access to God and in yielding obedience to him, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and willing mind. All these were common to believers also under the law. Under the New Testament, however, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. They have greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. And they experience in greater measure the gifts of God's free spirit that believers under the law ordinarily partake, partook of. We have freedom from, and you saw the list that's listed there, freedom from the guilt of sin because of the work of Jesus Christ. All who put their faith in Christ are declared forgiven and pardoned from all sin. Freedom from the wrath of God because Christ has delivered us from the wrath to come. Freedom now from bondage to sin shall not have dominion over you, and freedom from the powers of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his son. Freedom ultimately from the sting of death, the sting of trials, the sting of the grave. God has his purpose for believers, and the evil does not conquer over our lives. Believers have freedom for certain things, greater access to God through the son and greater fellowship with God through the spirit wonderful summary of the benefits of the gospel here in section chapter one. Section two is one of the most admired statements in all of the Westminster Confession. Section two, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or which in matters of faith or worship are in addition to it. Therefore, anyone who believes such doctrines or obeys such commands out of conscience betrays true liberty of conscience. The requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience destroys both liberty of conscience and reason. The source of Christian liberty is God only is the Lord of the conscience, and the guide that he's given us is the scriptures alone. So we're never, of course, to disobey Anything in God's word or never to obey anything contrary to God's word. But this section is saying something else. It's saying in the matters of faith and worship, 
No one can ask us to do anything in addition to Scripture. That's a wonderful privilege that we have as believers. And we saw the connection between sections 1 and 2. If, if Christ has purchased all these freedoms for the believer, then section 2 is, why on earth would you subject yourself to man-made rules and traditions of men? Since Christ has purchased this freedom for you, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, to not submit again to a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. But that is a very difficult balance to keep. Very difficult. It was J.I. Packer's illustration about the Christian life. It's like walking a tightrope. And Satan doesn't really care if you fall to the right or the left. He just wants you to fall. And so too with this chapter. You can fall to the right or you can fall to the left. And Satan doesn't really care which way you fall. It's so difficult to keep balanced in what this chapter is calling us to do. Tonight, we'd like to look at four abuses to the doctrine of Christian liberty, falling either to the right or to the left. You have the example of the legalism of the confused conscience. It's a fall to the right, more laws than God's word. Scruples of the weak conscience, again, a fall to the right, more laws than God's word. But then you fall to the left. You have the danger of a hardening conscience, putting off God's law, and the error of an autonomous conscience, again, falling to the left. The first abuse of Christian liberty is the danger of legalism. It's a confused conscience. It's a fall to the right. It's more laws than God's word. We looked at this last time. Hodge says, nothing can be rightfully imposed on the consciences of men as truth or duty, which is not taught directly or by necessary implication in the Holy Scripture. It was a reformation that came and sounded aloud again, sola scriptura, it's only the scriptures as the final authority for the conscience of God's people and took away so much of man-made traditions and opinions. They translated the scriptures for the people so they'd be able to read the scriptures and measure all things uh, by God's word. The believer is protected against all forms of legalism, whether that's man-made rules and man-made traditions or whether it's using the scriptures as for merit and, and approval before God. It's right in our confession. Wonderful chapter. We are opposed to all forms of legalism. There's another example of abuse to Christian liberty, and that's secondly, the scruples of the weak conscience. It's also a fall to the right. It's also more laws than God's word. The writers of the Westminster Confession would never say to the Christian, live by your conscience. Conscience is not autonomous, and we do not live by our conscience. You don't live by your feelings. You don't live by your opinions. As if our feelings, as if our conscience could be an infallible rule. Here in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, you had believers, their conscience is wrongly condemning them, even though they have a freedom. Their conscience is, is wrong. You have a, we must have a healthy mistrust of our conscience, a healthy mistrust of our feelings, a healthy mistrust of our opinions, unless we can come back to Scripture and govern everything according to Scripture. Charles Colson said, if you simply say, let your conscience be your guide, that's dangerous. Because if your conscience isn't informed by objective truth, it will be unreliable and simply a permission slip. It should be a monitor so your conscience needs to be well informed. What is the condition of the weak 
conscience, as Paul refers to these believers, both in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. It's a believer, a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they feel like they would be sinning if they go against man-made rules. They're more scrupulous than scripture, so they would only eat vegetables. They wouldn't eat meat. General rule of thumb is if a believer has more rules than scripture, they're more scrupulous than scripture, that would be a weak believer. You notice Paul says that they're they're not right. Romans 15.1, he puts himself in the category of the strong. And look at what he says in Romans 14.14, 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. That's quite strong for a previous kosher Jewish rabbi who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's saying, I know that all, all those kosher laws, they're gone. There's no reason to be following those. But a weak Christian's conscience would feel like they're, they're sinning if they go against uh, their scruples. And to put the best motive on them, this is not legalism. Paul would never tolerate legalism, merit before God. This is a believer who wants to live a more holy life. They're concerned for holiness. They're doing this out of thanks to the Lord, Romans 14, 6, out of a sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. So the strong are saying, don't you undervaluate the worship of the weak Christian. How does a believer get there? What are some causes for the weak conscience? Well, it could be a pendulum swing against the culture, the sin that's all around us. And so there's to be a tendency to create, let's create more rules so that we won't slip into sins, that we will pursue holiness. So maybe it's an example of a reaction to the sinful culture. A person comes to Christ and they say, boy, I'm not going to go to any more movies. I'm going to get rid of all my music from my non-Christian days. More, um, More rules. But for holiness, as a reaction to a pendulum swing of coming out from the culture. People who often are saved out of liberalism have the same reaction for a while. They, they smell, just smell liberalism wherever it is. Um, perhaps it's a pendulum swing from a person's own past sins. Someone who's saved out of drunkenness might respond, I, I'm not going to take any more alcohol ever again. And there, there's wisdom in that. But as a, as a weak believer, he cannot impose that standard on others. That was the issue in 1 Corinthians 8, 7. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. It's the weak Christian who's having trouble with eating this meat that's been offered to an idol. He knows in his head an idol is nothing, but in a heart... He's having trouble with this. He's been saved out of this. He's been worshiping idols his whole life. And it's a connection back to him emotionally of his sinful past. His whole family is still in the grips of idolatry. It's an emotional issue for him. Objectively, he says, there's one God. But emotionally, subjectively, there's more scruples. 
Maybe it's just a carryover from culture, upbringing. A Muslim is now a Christian but still refuses to eat pork. Or a Jewish person who's come now to Christ still keeps a kosher diet. The weak Christian, a genuine believer, loves the Lord, desires holiness, but is lacking a mature biblical thinking and so has more rules than scripture. It's overly scrupulous. Hopefully they will continue to grow and mature in their faith, but we're to accept them where they are now. And the strong must be careful not to harm their conscience. A weak conscience is not determined by age. You could have a high school believer who's strong in a certain area and a 60-year-old Christian who's weak in that area. It's issue by issue. It's a blind spot in a certain area, a weakness in a certain area, not an overall category. And so the scriptures challenge both, the challenge to the strong believer that you must not, first of all, tempt the weak. You can't use your freedoms to lead the weak Christian to harden their conscience, never cause one of the little ones to stumble, Matthew eighteen six. If a weak Christian is looking at you and just following your example and they haven't thought issues through and they see you doing certain things and they're just following your example, but in their heart they're thinking, this is sinful, what are you doing? You're teaching that young Christian to, to turn off the smoke alarm for all smoke, for all sin, for all temptation. You're hardening his conscience. That isn't the way to do things. You need to persuade somebody from Scripture, explain the reasons why you do things from Scripture, but never, ever cause somebody to just change their behavior contrary to how they feel. Whatever is not of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23 says. And the strong have to be very careful that you and your example are not teaching a young, weak Christian to harden their conscience and make shipwreck of their faith. The strong must never mock the weak, never patronize them. Holiness is dear to them, and they desire to please the Lord. The irony is when the strong brag and proudly strut about pushing their freedoms of behavior, not only is it wrong and unkind, but the irony is they're using behavior as a measure that they're better than others, which is the same thing the Pharisees did in their legalism. It's just an opposite expression of the same thing. The challenge to the weak believer is continue to grow. Examine everything by scripture, not your feelings, not your conscience, because it may be a weak conscience and it may not give you, you may have greater freedoms than your conscience is presently allowing you. And in this process to the weak believer, remember that your conscience cannot be the policy for the whole church. Galatians 2.4 because of false brothers have secretly been brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul saying there was a time when people were coming into the church and wanting to bring in Old Testament ceremonial law again for merit. We didn't put up with that for a minute because it's denying the gospel. That's scripture, Old Testament scripture. How much more even man-made additional laws? No, Galatians 5.1, stand fast in your freedom. Horton writes, yes, we're to be sensitive to the weaker brother, and yes, temper our freedom if it leads someone to sin. 
but we must also teach the weaker brother the truth about freedom of conscience and certainly can never allow a weaker brother's conscience to make the policy of the church or become what is forced on other people's conscience. So the weak believer may have scruples about something in their conscience. They cannot violate their conscience where they are right now. They have to think through the issue from Scripture, be persuaded from Scripture. Whatever's not of faith is sin. And they also cannot impose their scruples onto the whole church if there is no biblical teaching. That was the error of the Bible Presbyterians requiring abstinence from alcohol for church membership, causing a schism in the church. So congregations left the OPC to form the Bible Presbyterian denomination. It was a real real joy. I remember the Presbytery years later when that denomination had realized their error, repented of their sin, and wrote a letter of repentance asking for forgiveness. It was a very moving experience. John Calvin said, Christ has purchased our liberty, and knowledge of this freedom is is very necessary for us. For if it is lacking, our consciences will have no repose, and there will be no end to superstitions. For when consciences once ensnare themselves, they enter a long and inextricable maze, not easy to get out of. What are the abuses of the liberty of Christian freedom? Well, there's legalism of a confused conscience adding more laws than God's word. There's the scruples of the weak conscience, again falling to the right, more laws, more scruples than God's word. Now let's look at the left. You can fall off to the left too, and there's the danger of the hardening conscience, falling to the left, putting off the law of God. And this is section three in the confession. Those who, on the pretext of Christian liberty, practice any sin or cherish any evil desire, destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. This purpose is that, having been delivered out of the hand of our enemies, we may serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. How does a person harden their conscience? Well, because they want to. (laughs) That's the nature of sin. You're looking for an excuse. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 6.1. Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? Since Christ forgives all anyway, then I should just be able to live any way I like. No. You've been redeemed by Christ. And that sin that put him on the cross, we are to turn away from. You don't live by what you think you want. You don't live by what you think you have peace about or what feels good or what the world says is fine or just being my authentic self or everyone has their own truth. No, you have a sinful heart. wants to sin. That's, That's a cause of the hardening conscience and we're living in a culture where the world is trying to press you into its mold and the world hates Christ. Results of a survey by Patterson and Kim. Americans are making up their own rules, their own laws. In effect, we're making up our own moral codes. There is absolutely no moral consensus in this country as there was in the 1950s when all our institutions commanded more respect. Today, there is very little respect for the law, for any kind of law. The overwhelming majority of people, 93%, said that they and nobody else determines what is and what isn't moral in their lives. 
and they base their decisions on their own experience, even on their, quote, daily whims. How do I feel today? What's the challenge to those hardening their conscience? It's a wonderful truth that all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And those who have a genuine new heart want to please the Lord. Galatians 5.13, you're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but to serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as, as servants of God. Christian liberty can never, ever be used as an excuse that you can do what you want, that you can do what you feel, that you can do what you please without respect to God's moral law. You can't have the perspective, well, God's going to forgive me. I can do what I want. I'm free. You've been set free for a life of holiness, not for sin. And section three is saying here, in no way can this precious doctrine of Christian liberty be used as an excuse to return to sin. That's to return to slavery. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, John eight thirty four. Richard Gaffin writes, apart from the gospel and outside of Christ, the law is my enemy and condemns me. Why? Because God is my enemy and condemns me. But with the gospel and in Christ, united to him by faith, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Why? Because now God is no longer my enemy, but my friend. And the law, his will, the law in its moral core as reflective of his character and of concerns eternally inherent in his own person and so of what pleases him, is now my friendly guide for life in fellowship with God. It's a false dichotomy to say, I don't have to submit to God's word because of the Christian's freedoms of conscience. You cannot claim to be a Christian that, and think that way. Jesus said, don't call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. So if you do not have a heart that, that delights in God's law, you need a new heart. You need to pray that God will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that he'll forgive you and give you a willingness to submit and to obey him. And he promises you, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. R.C. Sproul said, if you do not delight in the law of God, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are a regenerate person. Don't think that the gospel, which frees you from the curse of the law, is a license for you to despise the law or to ignore the law. Christian freedom of conscience is a wonderful, precious doctrine, and correctly understood, it never implies a license to sin. Chad Van Dixorn, there's a vitally important difference between liberty and license, and we must pray that we will be giving the willingness and the wisdom to see it. There's another fourth abuse of Christian liberty, and that's also a fall to the left, the error of the autonomous conscience, putting off the authorities of God, and that's section four. This section was revised when the confession was adopted in the American Presbyterian Church in 1788, and we'll see that difference in a minute. Here's section four as we now have it in our confession. 
because the powers which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy each other, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, those who, in the name of Christian liberty, oppose any lawful power or any lawful exercise of it, whether civil or ecclesiastical, that means whether state or church, resist the ordinance of God. Those who declare opinions or maintain practices contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or manner of life, or the power of godliness, or who are guilty of such erroneous opinions or practices as either in their own nature or in the manner of publishing or maintaining them, are destructive of the external peace and order which Christ has established in the Church, may lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the Church. Hard stop. (laughs) But there wasn't a period there in the original Westminster Confession. The original Westminster Confession was written when Scotland already had a state church, the Presbyterian Church, and the writers of the Westminster Confession were hoping that it would be adopted in England and Ireland as well as a state church document. And in the original Westminster Confession, after centuries of the church, comma, and by the power of the civil magistrate. That is what's been deleted in American Presbyterianism. There's general agreement that it's biblically appropriate for church to do discipline. That's not what the confession is talking about here. There's agreement on that. Why would the American church drop that phrase and by the power of the civil magistrate? The original Westminster Confession with that phrase in there is not saying that all sin may be proceeded against by the state. Only some. And we would, we would agree with that. If there was the sin, if it became known of the sin of the physical abuse of a minor, the church would report that to the state. And the state would enforce it. The church would do discipline. Both spheres, church and state, would do discipline. The original Westminster Confession is not implying that the state would become the church and function like the church, taking on the keys of the kingdom. That's not what it's saying. The original confession was just simply acknowledging that as believers, we live in two spheres. You live in the state and you live in the church. And sometimes those two will overlap. And sometimes it will be appropriate for both of them to do discipline. So Sinclair Ferguson suggests that it was probably an overreaction to that generation to remove that phrase. But nevertheless, it's been removed in the American church. Section 4 then, standing back, what's it saying? How do you summarize Section 4? Section 4 is saying, you cannot use Christian liberty to say, I am free in Christ, therefore I don't have to submit to any authority. No, it's a false use of freedom to say that, to oppose God's ordained authority. The Christian's believer is always in submission to King Jesus, and King Jesus has required us to submit to his governing authorities. You can't use Christian liberty as a way to escape from submitting to either church or state. They're not in conflict. 
It's a false use of freedom of conscience to oppose civil authority. Peter would exhort us, 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so too, it's a false freedom of conscience to say, to oppose proper church authority. The Bible doesn't recognize somebody who claims to be a Christian and they're not in a visible church of Christ under authority of elders and following deacons. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's why each of us takes that vow in our membership when we join. Do you submit in the Lord to the government of this church? Denomination, think denomination. And in case I be found delinquent in doctrine or life to heed their discipline, and we say, yes, I'd be very glad to be taught from God's word. R.C. Sproul writes, any church that is a true church has the responsibility to exercise discipline over its members. That comes as a shock to many people in the United States. God hasn't liberated us to be free from all authority that he's established. So how do you take section two, which says God alone is the Lord of the conscience. He's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or in matters of faith and worship are in addition to you. How do you take that in the section four here, submit to authorities? Well, section two has to always govern section four. So the elders have a very difficult job keeping this balance. We pray for them. They must always work to keep a proper balance and make policy by the light of nature and Christian prudence, 1 Corinthians fourteen forty, let all things be done decently and in order. But there is a line where they start to, there could be a line to require the church to obey for religious significance or meaning, and that would be contrary to or in addition to scripture. The elders have every right for common order and decency. They can ask us to be quiet at 1040 as we prepare for worship. They can set the time of worship services, that we have one or two services. Try something a little more difficult, perhaps. The elders may certainly establish the procedure for a person to take the Lord's Supper and make profession of faith. Why? That they're trying to balance the order that's given to them and rule in the church, and yet only the scriptures govern everything. So a person can't say, well, I have freedom of conscience and there's nothing in the form of government that says, I know the form of government says that an elder is going to interview us and receive us into the communion. But I don't find a proof text anywhere in the Bible that says the session is to have an interview. No, but those principles are there. And so the principles are saying that you must be a believer to partake of the Lord's Supper. There must be a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that you have professed him before men. Okay? And elders are given the responsibility that they must guard the the table of the Lord. As far as they know, only those who are partaking have, have made a credible profession of faith. 
That's required of them, Acts 20, 28. And so they have every right to say, here's the procedure that will do that. We'll set up an interview where we'll listen to somebody make a credible public profession of faith and we will receive them into the communion of believers. We'll receive them to the Lord's Supper. That proper is proper order and procedure and we must submit to it. No one can say, well, there's Christian liberty. I can do what I want. No, you can't. No one can. When God has established proper civil authority and church authority, unless they're requiring us to do something, even in addition to scripture that would conflict, be a conflict of the conscience, we submit with joy so that their work would be a joy. It's a false use of Christian freedom. It's never to be understood as individualism or not submitting to proper church authority. For the Christian's freedom of conscience is not absolute freedom. It's a freedom that's been defined by King Jesus, and he calls us to submit to legitimate authority that he establishes for us in both the state and church. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the order of government that you have given to us. What a fearful thing it would be to live in a culture of anarchy. What a fearful thing it would be to have no order and rule. Thank you for our brothers, our elders here who serve your church so well. We appreciated the prayer for them this morning and thank you for their hard work and labor and as they find this balance of protecting the Christian's liberty of conscience and also establishing good order. Thank you for them. Thank you for our denomination and the documents we have and the protection that each believer has. Thank you for this confession. Thank you that we stand on the shoulders of other generations who have worked these things through and how grateful we are for them. Thank you for all these principles of the word. Thank you now for each one who has been received into the body of Christ, visible, and is able to come to the Lord's table tonight. May we come to this table knowing that Christ is present with us and he is assuring us of the forgiveness of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.